<laughs> Maggie Smith, probably, and others. In honor of Sally Field and Hello, My Name is Doris, what's your favorite performance from an actress over 60? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Julie Chrissy and away from her because didn't she deserve that Oscar over Mar Marion Cotillard? Hey, it's me, Dave with the Seven. Diana Rigg on the episode of Extras where Daniel Radcliffe throws a condom onto her head. Yikes. I am at Patches, and I should probably just say Charlotte Rampling in 45 years, but to spread awareness for the future, I'm actually going to go with Ellen Burstyn in Todd Salance's Wiener Dog, coming to a theater near you. Whoa. Hmm. Uh, and I'm David Ehrlich, and just because I wanted to go with the first thing that came to mind, I could go with Gloria Stewart in Titanic, just for the way that she goes, ah, when she drops the heart of the sea into the ocean. Or the heart of the ocean into I like the, the sea. Way she, <laughs> like the way she says, and it was, it really was. It really was. was. I, mean, I like the line where she's like, take me, Jack. Just take almost me. Almost every line of her performance <laughs> is quotable. There you go. The line where she turns to Bill Paxton, she's like, take me, Bill. Just take me. What do you have against Titanic, huh? I actually love Titanic. Have I never made us watch Titanic for a quarter quill? That's happening. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 110 for Tuesday, March 8th, 2016. Great news! On this day in 1993, Beavis and Butthead premiered on MTV. Holy shit, that means Beavis and Butthead is old enough to drink. And now Katie will do her Beavis and Butthead impression. Oh my god, I never had one, did you? You must have. No, I, I actually, Beavis and Butthead was one of the scariest things. I had nightmares about that show. I just fell into like the <laughs> thing. Like that was really intense and scary. I didn't watch a lot of MTV. So whenever I did, it was like, like midnight sleeping over at a friend's house or something. Mm -hmm. And Beavis and Butthead was the scariest thing. Scarier than like any horror movie I'd ever seen. Just that, I don't know, the graggly animation and the grunting freaked me out. The weird music yeah. videos always kind of freaked me out. Late at well, night, man. Squares. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Where's your Beavis impression, Dave? Natural. Oh, I didn't really, I didn't have a good, yeah, I didn't have a good one. But I wasn't like super giggly as a child or even really now. But man, animation wise, that show was awesome. Just in terms of giving us King of the Hill and Mike Judge who ev keeps evolving into interesting things. True. Happy birthday, Beavis and Butthead. Uh, before we get started this week, I've been told we had a flood of new reviews, and uh, we're not going to read all of them, just a selection, just so we can keep them going for a while. But uh, we'll get we'll get to the ones that we skipped this week. But. Yes, we will. Eventually yeah, no, read we them will. All. We will read them. We will read them all. But let's spread. People the should still, you know, review the show so that we yes, will read please them. Keep we're reviewing. not going to gloss over anything. Yeah, we will um, not. We will not skip you. But uh, yeah, we want to share the wealth. So uh, yeah, David, what do we got? Yeah, we had a, a record-breaking week of reviews. The the first that we'll read tonight is from Neva Wink. Says consensus is boring. Five stars. As all my coworkers gather around the water cooler to discuss the Billions recap podcast, I never fail to suggest fighting in the war room. For lovers of film and people who find pop culture interesting, there is no better podcast to go to if you want to hear an intelligent and entertaining discussion on topics from four very diverse but equally fascinating voices. There is no point in trying to put each of the hosts in a box or a role, aka the one who holds it all together. They are their own individual with well-thought-out opinions and points of view that bring a unique perspective to film and media. Between the four of them, they have very, they've held the Nice Man's Oscar, dared to not love FX's Fargo, known every spoiler four months before they happen, and have been attacked by Fox News. To put it simply, <laughs> look no further for great film discussion. And as a lifelong Nebraskan, I would like to reassure the four hosts, you are not too New York-based. I want to hear about what's playing in New York because it's probably not playing here. Oh, hey! But it's probably on mm. your on-demand system. Mm. More the, the better chances than ever for three yeah. white people and the Latino. We're as diverse as we can get <laughs> um, <laughs> in our voices. Uh, uh, let's let's do one more. Up, 
Yes, Danny Uncanny says, not a koala podcast. Not a koala podcast. <laughs> Five stars. Indeed. I happened to stumble upon this podcast in the iTunes store and was attracted to the minimalist black and white koala on the cover art. Intrigued and hoping to add another quality koala cast to my subscriptions, I was initially disappointed by the lack of koala content. Lucky for me, I'm an avid movie fan as well as a good koala enthusiast, and was delighted to hear such great discussion on films and pop culture. I'm baffled by how long I was living my life without fighting in the war room. It's the only podcast that had me rolling my eyes at someone trash-talking and cackling with laughter on the next beat. You guys have such great chemistry, and it is a genuine joy to listen to you every week. P.S. But seriously, why is the podcast logo a koala? It really, it actually does look like koala face now that <laughs> only, I've stared at it for that. hours. <laughs> I never would have seen that, I don't think. <laughs> but, uh, I what an amazing perspective. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, have, we have such uh, But it doesn't have ears. What happened to that koala? That's, it's <laughs> a really a tragic image if you think it's a koala face. There are no ears. It can't even hear the podcast. God damn. I think uh, I need to animate the front logo on the fightinginthewarroom.com yes. page to stop turning into a world and start turning into a koala. Koala bear would be perfect. Yeah. Um, oh. I'm currently looking to try to find which podcast we want to beat now. Um, well, I should just say, since that someone mentioned the Billions podcast, that I'm now, I'm now shifting my anger over the iTunes algorithm from billions, which I can't, I don't know if it's on the top 200 anymore to the fuller house podcast, because (laughs) I just don't like, I watched two episodes of fuller house and can't imagine anyone finding anything in the text of the show to talk about. So maybe it's an amazing podcast. I just want to be ahead of it. I just want to be better than fuller house, anything related to the show. I'm sorry to the hosts of that show. Well, it could just be, a looping clip of that bit of dialogue from the beginning of Seven Samurai where the farmer is like, why has God forsaken us? And then, <laughs> you got it, dude! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> over and over. Well, if you want to help us achieve greatness over the Fuller House podcast or just want us to read your review, uh, please keep reviewing us and we will keep up, we'll keep up with the ones that we didn't read today. And thank you, as always. Anytime I wanna go outside, I stop and think about getting some Anytime I wanna go for a ride, I stop and think about getting in a car crash. If you're listening to this. And you're and you're outside. Look look out. Look out into the world. Look up at the clouds. Take a deep breath. Uh, glide your hand over the nearest fabric or wheat stalk because we're we're going to talk about. Are we going to talk about the X Files? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The truth is out there. You're standing in a crop circle. No, is this no, is Dave. your voice the vo- the inner monologue of the people who are gazing into the world like this? Yes. They're not what if what has my father doneth? Why am I here on this planet? Why did I see Knight of Cups, the latest Terrence Malick film? Uh, we were going to review this movie last week. I got stuck on a train, and then we didn't do it. So we're going to swing back. Uh, David, you and I have seen Knight of Cups. Uh, Katie and Dave, you have probably seen people either bitching about or praising the hell out of Knight of Cups. I've seen a really More diverse bitching, amount of... Sure. Uh, really? Mm-hmm. I okay. think so. So people are kind of rolling their eyes at Terrence Malick at this point. Um, perhaps I, I don't. I don't know what you know. This is exactly what you would expect from Terrence Malick taking on Hollywood, taking on the the role of the artist, uh, working in a commercial world, obsessed with making movies. It stars Christian Bale. I believe his character's name is Rick, although I'm not sure it's ever uttered out loud. Um, but Rick is a screenwriter, which I only learned after. The movie, um, and he is. Wait, he's a screenwriter. Yes, yes, yes. I, according to Christian I Bale, I've seen the film twice, and uh, I thought he was an actor. Exactly. I well, it's, I mean, the way that his agents speak to him in one scene, and also the amount of sex with like beautiful young Hollywood starlets he has is uh, well, not a typical. This is what the screenwriters you follow on Twitter aren't telling you. They're yeah. boning everyone um well yeah you and it's it's extra confusing because he's standing on set and like dan Harmon will show up or all these actors will be around him at a party and you're kind of wondering 
what do you do? Do you ever actually work? He like walks on a studio back lot at one point, and that's the closest we really see him in work mode. Um, yeah, if he's the writer, what's Dan Harmon doing there? Yeah, well, what's anyone doing in these movies? Um, so basically, yeah, it's it's Christian Bale wandering through his life, reflecting on youth. Uh, he shares a few scenes uh, with his brother, uh, played by, oh God, slipping me. Wes Bentley, David, right? Wes Bentley, who they do look alike. That was a good casting. Do they? I think so. You don't think they look alike? They both have the same kind of bangs thing going on. I think of West Bentley from that... his eyes. Go ahead. Yeah, can I say they look, they look alike enough, and yet it was also not good casting? Yes, you can. Actually, Wait, why? All, all, all West Bentley has to do is scream. That's all he does well, in this movie, and like roll around. His character is that I think with Malik's current way of doing things, which is really just to sort of trawl for footage for year for a little while, and then uh, spend a few years assembling it um, and layering ADR on top, voiceover where uh, where it needs to go or he feels it needs to go. Certain things feel especially inauthentic and sort of expose that production model uh, right. approach and. Um, uh, Wes Bentley's performances, every line being something that he's shouting, um, given it, it really sort of exposes how flimsy whatever motivation he might has, have is. It feels too vague and generic and, um, it just forces you to, into confrontation with this, uh, with Malik's approach, um, rather than, you know, it, what it, he's getting out of it. And, and I think there are a lot of moments in this movie that are like that, that the, the myth of Terrence Malick and the approach that he's demonstrated in other films since Tree of Life, especially, um, they're becoming repetitive and maybe not uh, crossing a threshold into, into true meaning, into something revelatory. So in this movie, Christopher Bale is he's hanging out with his brother. He's meeting with his dad, played by Brian Dennehy, and they're kind of just staring at each other or grabbing each other like men do when they're having serious talks about life and emotion. Uh, or he's, you know, running around with the women he's fallen in love with over the years. Emojid Poots, Natalie Portman, Kate Blanchett, uh, Isabel Lucas, just all the, uh, Frida Pinto, all these women he's been in love with and who've wandered on the beaches or walked the Santa Monica Pier and they, uh, it's just so full of love and so full of meaning or is it you know the questions of life uh what is this movie really trying to get at i think it's something about the ambition the art the 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 passion you put into your work and how maybe i don't know does love distract does you have to like turn your back to everything and and commit to the work but then like it's really about nothing and i guess that's the big problem for me that it's it's all superfluous it's really not digging deep into anything at any point because all of the language feels disposable and all of the camera movements and performances feel very trite because no one seems to know where they are or what movie they're in. And it's all disjointed. I want to agree with both contradictory parts of what you said in that like, I, I think that a lot of it is, is too vague and, and not necessarily hitting the nail on the head, but I don't think that it was about nothing. Uh, for me, this movie reminds me a lot of something like Akiru, uh, the Kurosawa film, or any of the movies that sort of uh, came afterwards that are about people who wake up one morning and sort of realize for whatever reason, whether it's terminal stomach cancer, as it was in Akiru, or um, an earthquake, is what sort of uh, kickstarts Knight of Cups, um, that they have wasted a significant or overwhelming portion of their lives, and they are filled with this intense regret for... Um, what it is that caught their attention in the Kiru bureaucracy here, uh, the vapidity of, of Hollywood, the vapidness, um, the banality of, you know, chasing around these movie stars and their parties and these producers who just want to talk to you about getting high on ketamine and, um, and everything else. And they're, you know, in the, in the, uh, rafters and, and, uh, corners of this movie are amazing one-liners from famous people. Nick Offerman has this great line, um, that, you know, if you, choose to not have your ears totally engaged for half a second you might miss but he's talking about how he lives his life like he's playing call of duty on easy mode (laughs) just like um (laughs) it goes there's yeah it's uh the line is a little bit more uh there's a little bit more to it than that but it's a lot of things like that that are strewn throughout it but um yeah i mean i think rick's character christian bale uh is a guy who he's left Kate blanchett there he she was his wife um 
And that, you know, leaving Cape Blanchard already starting in a pretty unsympathetic I know, a huge spot. mistake. Uh, Good yeah, Lord. Huge. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is a guy who is reckoning with the death of his brother. And Terrence Malick's brother um, died when Terrence Malick was very young, uh, was believed to have commit, committed suicide. Um, and so there are some autobiographical elements in here. Again, with the daddy issues, as brought out by Brian Dennehy. And for all the shit that Spielberg gets about daddy issues, I think that... Uh, Terrence Malick might be due for some as well uh, and tends to give them a little bit less flavor. It's all the same variety. But yeah, I mean, I think Rick is a guy who just like realizes how empty his life is and is trying to to restore some meaning to it. Um, yeah, I guess it I just that, for like, me. Well, my problem with the movie, just real quick to finish up, was yeah. just that um, was that I felt like it was overdetermined. Terrence Malick's style is so searching. It's so about yeah. sort of finding his way towards grace and in uh, unlike in Tree of Life, which is a movie that at least the first 90 minutes of, I think, are rapturous, um, it feels like he knows where he's going from the beginning. And he's just taking a very circuitous route to get to this very simple conclusion that, you know, people, God shows his love through suffering and that, like, through these, this torpor and this, the, the banality of your existence, you'll find the things to care about. Uh, through the pain of losing your brother, you will learn what it is to love uh, and so on. Uh, but it feels like he knew exactly what he was trying to say from the moment he decided to cut together this edit. And well, I, I guess that's him. that's I completely agree with you when I when I snidely remark that the movie is about nothing. I I don't really believe that. Obviously, uh, I think some of the footage of trying to like turn L.A. and this artificiality into you know, one of these verdant settings that he's taken us to in his photography or these just these very rural environments. Um, I think that's really interesting. Uh, but yeah. it's instead of capturing like the banality of that world, the filmmaking itself just ends up being banal for the exact reason you're saying. There's there's an artificiality to the movie he's making. It's not searching. It's not free flowing. Um, and it doesn't feel like Christian Bale is on a real spirit journey, even though sometimes he's just in the middle of the, the mountains or the desert, just like walking and thinking. It feels very contrived or, or outside of its own realm. You know, I, I remarked on Twitter that I was curious if this you know, do we need to know things about directors to make their movies more interesting? Hopefully not. But in this case, I feel like uh, kind of the recluse personality of Terrence Malick, it would be more interesting if I knew a little more about him or what he is doing right now in life. Like, why does he need to make a movie about a 40-year-old guy, you know, hot, studly man, Christian Bale, getting with all these really gorgeous women and not feeling a thing? You know, what, what is going on in his life that he's making this movie right now? It's just, it feels like a real detachment. Um, and I don't, yeah, and, and I don't necessarily want to need that to enjoy it. But yeah, something's missing from this movie. A personal touch. Uh, even as you may, as you mentioned, there's, there's a lot of autobiographical information in it. Yeah, and it's, you know. So it's, it's a movie it's about the uh, hollowness of L.A. That's a uh, hollow. Yes, yeah, I mean, it, I it, that's exactly like- it. You know, you talk about him being a recluse. I don't know if that's the word that I would use for it because I think that just because somebody doesn't do press and doesn't want to live in L.A. doesn't necessarily mean they're a recluse. But That's true. Christian uh, Bale can call him whenever he wants, uh, yeah. according to uh, Christian Bale. Yeah. I, Matt, Matt did a great interview with Christian Bale uh, on Thrillist. You should read. Uh, but I, I think that – and again, I have no way of knowing this for sure. And Terrence Malick certainly is not. Terry, my boy Terry, certainly isn't going to confirm this. But <laughs> at times watching this movie, I felt like he was uh, sort of giving his argument as to why he has avoided that whole, whole Hollywood scene his entire career. Like this was sort of um, But how can he comment fear. on it if he's avoided it? That's what's weird. Well, I mean, I'm me. sure he's I mean, interacted with yeah. it enough. Yeah. I mean, he was yeah. writing studio movies back in his early days, so... But yeah. this is not the Hollywood he's – that wasn't the Hollywood he was working in. I mean, it's been almost the same for the entire 100 years it's been around. But, like, it's not the same Hollywood. It, it's – especially when you're capturing it in, in modern times. You're really plucking it from this exact moment. That This is not what you lived, Terrence Malick. Is the movie but, really that specific about how Hollywood works or is it just kind of using the vague Not really, details? but – I mean, you're bringing a lot to the table, I guess, when you when you watch it, your understanding of Hollywood, too, because there's not specific. I mean, there's one scene where he meets with his agents. There's one scene where he's he on set doing something. That's pretty much it when it comes to. Yeah. So it feels to me like 
I haven't seen this movie, but like the idea of Hollywood, like the national symbol of it, is kind of more important than what real Hollywood is in most movies, even including right. this one. So the big debate to conclude this conversation is, you know, David, I believe in your review, you call it uh, uh, Terrence Malick's episode of Entourage. Yeah. For me, it's Terrence Malick Zoolander. For clear reasons. He's lampooning Hollywood because of what for they do. For clear reasons. <laughs> for clear reasons. He loves Zoolander. That's a you big one. Zoolander 2 broke his heart? Christian Bale is now going to find out because he wasn't sure if Terrence Malick had seen Zoolander 2 when we spoke, but he was determined to go find out. And now the world will never will never know. Yeah, Christian Bale isn't going to report back. That's the, that's the worst part. So whoever interviews Christian Bale next has to ask him about Terrence Malick and Zoolander 2. Game of um, telephone. Which will be sad. But uh, for people who see Knight of Cups, they can get back to David and I. Who wins the argument? Is it Entourage or is it Zoolander? Because I can't imagine Terrence Malick watching Entourage. I certainly can't imagine Terrence him Malick's watching Entourage. Austin Powers. My <laughs> argument wasn't contingent on him knowing what he was. Uh, and that's why my argument is correct. <laughs> oh, you don't need to wear a mask with us, Pete. We know all your secrets. Because, of course, we were you. The symbiote that I destroyed. Did you really think a little refrigeration would do us in? You ensnared another human being? Someone better suited to our gifts. And to our mission, destroying you for rejecting us. From now on. We're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. We're Venom! So on Friday, news broke that Sony was going to make a Venom movie, and I, I was going to ask Dave to explain what the hell's going on with it, but uh, David has offered his uh, services to explain uh, the Venom movie. David, Comic book scholar, David well, Comic book scholar, David right. Ehrlich. <laughs> so Kate, Katie so, said David will explain, or at least that's what I heard, so I took it upon myself to try. <laughs> All right, so Venom, right? Here we go. Venom was yeah. what happened to Spider-Man when the symbiote or something okay. like, got him with the black goo. And then it was like he made him a dancer. And he was also Tobey uh, <laughs> Maguire. And then, no, I see. Your Maguire. touchstone uh, is Spider-Man 3. Okay, no, no, not no, the history no, of the also, character. Tover Grace. You meant Tover Grace. Tover Grace. Thank right. you. But thank you, Katie. But let's not just limit this to Spider-Man 3. He was also, with the tongue, the guy who you could be in the video games... You know, like the Spider-Man video games in the 90s. And he would always be uh -huh. like, he would have like less Spidey-like powers, but he would be more of a brawler. Uh, and he'd be black and white, and he'd have this big red tongue. And uh, that's Venom, pretty much. So there's going to be that yeah. movie. And he's going to be Venom. <laughs> Sounds great. Dave, what yeah. did David miss? Dave, do you have anything to add? Uh, well, I guess I could just connect more... Dots because he's not uh, off on the basics. Okay, but, so Dave, uh, there's gonna be Sony's have like a Spider-Man Venom movie that they were trying to spin off around Amazing Spider-Man Two time when they thought that that was going to launch a whole Spider-Man. Wait, they've been trying to make universe. this movie much earlier than that. Since like, like Topher Grace was yes. like, talking about making this movie for a while. Yeah, Venom's always been a popular uh, property to sort of like spin off. He's comes from the early '90s, like Deadpool. Yes, era. and so, so no surprise that his name is cropping Deadpool, up now ding, 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 ding. in the post R-rated Deadpool world that we live in. Exactly. The interesting thing about this new incarnation is this is the first time they've talked about it being completely separate from Spider-Man. So we are looking more at not like a Venom that's some sort of alien that attached to Peter Parker and now has like spider powers. You're looking more at just like the monster of the Venom symbiote, presumably. Or they could go with his current comics incarnation where he's like a superhero because Flash Thompson, the guy who used to bully Peter Parker... Went to Afghanistan and got his legs blown off, and the military gave him the Venom suit, and he kind of like overpowered it with good, and now it's his legs, and he's also a superhero. His so, real legs. I'm sorry. His I, real legs. I'm quoting Avatar. Uh, I know, of course. <laughs> but yeah, it's a little bit, a little bit <clears throat> Avatar-y. That's one direction I could go with it. The Venom used to have its own solo comic, and the first arc of that basically has him as the thing. Uh, in like a so like you know frozen tundra lab, and Venom gets in and slowly takes somebody over, and then you know becomes this consuming thing. 
And so Venom is so like, really when he's broad not connect- compared to like yes. Deadpool. He's more of a look, especially if you're going to take him away from being related to Spider-Man because Venom is kind of, his design has a giant white spider on it because he used to be Spider-Man's suit before he paired with like the vengeful Eddie Brock. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see which Venom they choose or how they treat it, but it's very possible this is just a monster movie that's picking up on Deadpool's uh, R-rated Oh yeah, 100%. They, they got the one of the Edge of Tomorrow writers uh, re-scripting it. Oh, that's cool. So, Wait, so I, I could see it go Fox kind thing? of like... No, no this, this is a Sony, Sony thing. Sony thing. It's Avi Arad and Matt Tolomach. The, the guys who brought us the amazing last Spider-Man, Spider-Man run. Yeah, yeah. Well, so... And yeah. Okay. Go. Is there a standalone Spider-Man movie currently in production or soon yes. to be in production with uh, this kid who they just cast? Yep. And yes. and directed by the guy. Marvel. No, that's Marvel no, and that's Sony, Sony, a co-production. It's No, it's both. It's both. The standalone movie is a co-production Correct. as well? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. So that's the big deal they made to kind of like rejuvenate yes. I thought the property. big deal was just to put Spider-Man mm-hmm. in like... Uh, Avengers. Uh, well, that's that's what's so weird ones. about this, right? So they hired the guy John Watts, who directed Cop Car, and Marvel is stepping in to like help Sony figure out how to make comic book movies. But then they're going to make this Venom movie, which is the old guys, the old guard, doing their thing again. So, Dave, as a kind of wrap up question here, are we past, or have we now blown past the like crossover? moment that all movie universes needed to have is this imploding it didn't last very long and no one actually got around to doing it but is this is this over or do we have to wait for the transformers cinematic universe to come and go before we could truly r.i.p it i think you could look at it as sony sort of uh doing triage on its super small superhero branch so like the spider-man movie is Executive co-executive produced by Amy Pascal and Kevin Feige. So there's like a team up there. But the rights to Spider-Man and the ancillary rights are still at Sony and are sort of up for grabs. And so these guys had like this whole universe plan and had like a production structure in for more future Spider-Man movies. And then because of, you know, some unfortunate business decisions and like a public hack in the middle of like those business decisions uh they had to like sort of split the property out in this marvel sharing deal so i sort of see it as like they saw deadpool happen they're like what superheroes do we even own anymore and what they have are all the ancillary spider-man characters and like he jumping directly into venom is something that marvel probably isn't going to do and now that they are splitting him off, it means that Marvel's probably never going to reference that character because it's just going to become Sony's little piece of the pie. The Fantastic well, kind of Four Deadpool, of the X-Men, if you will. Yeah, I mean, like kind of how like Deadpool is Fox. I mean, Fox has X-Men and uh, Fantastic Four as well, but like Deadpool is their little bit. Yeah, Deadpool is more interesting because it got its rights sold separately to Lionsgate, and then it just ended up back at 20th Century Fox completely free of Fantastic Four and the Mutants. So it drifted back separately. Venom has been split from the Spider-Man property, and they're going to try to you know, like make its own little thing. This is so complicated. Venom? Yeah, this, it's going to be is fun. This, is it going to be good? <laughs> oh, I mean, no one's making it. It's just a, Venom. Yeah, last time we had a movie from uh, Aviard and Matt Tolomac who was supposed to be an animated Spider-Man, and I don't think that's happening anymore. So we'll just see if the, what starts production first. It's an arms race. All right. Thank you for that explainer, Dave. Yeah, what have you got? Got two victims in Brentwood. Brentwood? Nobody gets killed in Brentwood. All right. You're going to say this case is all about race. Yes, because it is. So we are six episodes in to The People versus OJ, American Crime Story. Um, It's a bit of a phenomenon, right? Like everyone seems to be watching this show. Maybe there's nothing else on, uh, but everyone's There is nothing else on, but also it's popular at the same time. Yeah, I mean, and it's a high-quality drama. This is from Scott Alexander and Larry Karazewski, who did Ed Wood. Zuski. Ed Wood, Big Eyes, uh, 1408. 
Um, but these guys have done a lot of biography stuff. We talked about it a little bit on a previous episode where we talked about true crime. Um, and this show is phenomenal. And I think we just want to get into the nitty gritty here a little bit. Uh, we assume many of you are watching it. But the, the first question here for all, uh, for, for, is for David. David, why are you not watching this goddamn show? Because apparently, <laughs> unlike you guys, I'm going to die one day. And I value the time that I have on this planet. Uh, I First of all, there's a documentary coming out in like June on ESPN that was at Sundance uh, about it's eight and eight and a half I've seen hour, half of it. Hour. Yeah, I hear it's absolutely incredible. And I do not it is. need, I really do not need two takes on the O.J. Simpson trial uh... and story and whatnot now. Um, I'm going to go with that one. Uh, I do not need to see, I've seen a few clips, uh, you know, David Schwimmer talking to the Kardashians about you know, watch out for being famous one day. Like, this just looks like the campiest crap. And I, as someone who spent mm. two hours this weekend watching the pilot and first two episodes after that of Dawson's Creek, or rewatching, I should say, uh, wow. I, I've scraped the bottom you of the I thought you were going to die someday, David. <laughs> I'm going to. And it's like, it's moments like this that really just put me into confrontation with my own impending death. And, uh,. And uh, make me realize that, A, I need to cut off Dawson's Creek because, geez, Louise, that show. Woof. Uh, and, B, I got no time for this O.J. Simpson shit. Well, I think See, what's so surprising were... is that it's not that campy. but Katie. Yeah, you're having the reaction that I think everyone initially had. I mean, Patch is the name you left off as a creative person is Ryan Murphy, who is the executive producer and whose name has kind of been selling the whole thing. And I think everyone was anticipating, like, American Horror Story, like, something like Glee. Like, he, his name has not been on serious drama in any real way. But what's surprising about the show is despite the kind of bonkers casting and the inherently nonsense story behind the O.J. Simpson trial, it's really compelling for a lot of different reasons. And some of it is, yeah, can't be scenes like the one where the Kardashian kids show up, but also like really amazing performances from people like Sarah Paulson and Courtney B. Vance. But that Kardashian bit is such a fraction of what's going on in this show. It's a cold open, really. It is supposed to be a big, campy, cold open, totally separate, like... The, the cold opens of each episode kind of make a point about, okay, the O.J. Simpson trial was the beginning of reality television. The O.J. Simpson trial was the the pinnacle of uh, the LAPD versus uh, African-American race war. You know, the O.J. Simpson trial was the tabloid <laughs> extravaganza. Like, it was, it's just each one hits a different note, and then we kind of dive in to the character work and the phenomenal character work. I don't think these performances are campy at all. I think they're really hard-hitting from uh, the language that FX is allowed to use, this colorful language, this uh, swear-filled language. Um, to, wow. Yeah, they can, they can go there. Swears. Swear words, cussing. Uh. <laughs> but, but to also just, like, to take the time to have 10 episodes to get to unravel this story david i know you're looking for the documentary but what the documentary does is it's really a giant tapestry of context you know that documentary goes it starts with oj at usc and explains how he got so famous this one kind of assumes a little bit of knowledge because it's all about the trial it's all about the circus open questions all three of you tell me what and and i'm this is not a uh you know, this is not meant to be a leading question. I, I'm sure that there are legitimate answers to this. What watching the show sort of tells me that I may not have already known or gives me another example of about this country, about <laughs> either the, the, Everything. the distance that we've traveled since then or haven't, or um, what does it oh, tell I, me I, I, that, I that should yeah. give me... Because it's like I feel, you know, like I've devoted enough of my life already, if not way, way, way too much, to the O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah, I mean, I think because it's a fictionalized account that has, like, the benefit of hindsight, you get to see a lot of, uh, especially because it focuses so much on race, which it sounds like it's something that the entire series is going to do, because they talked about in in January wanting the second season to be about Hurricane Katrina's, like, fallout. So it's really interesting to, not, not only is it picking up something on, like, the true crime which we brought up before where it's showing us how this trial unfolded from a legal standpoint and how people's like personalities can get in the way of justice but it's taking it from a 
racial standpoint that isn't so blown out like a lot of the coverage of the trial was that it draws a direct parallel to stuff that's happening today you know and so you know by the time you get to the point where you're panning down to Furman polishing his Nazi paraphernalia you're kind of like it's not like a chuckle moment it's just like a knowing uh watching a train wreck moment but i mean I it's not i don't think it's going to teach you necessarily <laughs> yeah that's a good point but i mean it's not going to teach you anything new about the trial but it, i mean especially for people that's like well, lived, that lived through it but i do think it's going to put it put it into a context that it didn't exist in from any of our perspectives when we were living through it i don't know do you katie would do you agree that you you won't learn anything about the trial. I mean, I think we get I mean, a lot de- of surface details. We remember the the turning points. You know, if the if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. You know that kind of fit. stuff. Come on, he used uh, proper whatever. Grammar. I don't give a shit. Um, the, it's 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 the behind the scenes relationships. It's Marsha Clark's divorce and like the stress of trying to go through that proceeding while you're trying OJ and the passions that drew her to the case, you know, that he was sexually, or, or not sexually abusing, just abusing Nicole and just, like, the rage behind her eyes, having someone... Well, yeah, but that makes a good TV series that doesn't teach me anything new about the trial of the legal system. Like, it's a great series because well, it, it manages to, like, thematically that, package episodes. Humanizing the justice system is teaching you something about it. It's about... Right, but they're, like, screwing... They're screwing with the actual, like, what knows... Who knows what about Furman timeline to accentuate certain character moments. So it's, like... I'm not sure if it's going to teach David anything about the O.J. Simpson trial. Yeah, but what it, what, what it gives me about the O.J. trial, and, like, what I remember about it is pretty little. I mean, we were all children when this was happening, and, like, I remember it, but I don't remember. Like, I didn't remember that Mark Furman existed. Like, that's how vague my memory was. But it sets up this kind of slow-motion train wreck where you're watching Marsha Clark and Christopher Darden build their case, and they're so confident in it, and they have these mountains of DNA evidence, and then they make mistake after mistake after mistake. And it's a lot of it is built on them, especially Marshall Clark having no understanding of the racial resentment that exists in Los Angeles and this is two years after the Los Angeles riots like it's so fresh and they really really underestimate it which is essentially why they lose the case and you're watching this dramatic irony play out where you know that how it's going to end and they don't and what like watching all those pieces fall apart it's so fascinating it's set up as good drama and even though yeah like they're fudging some details about who knows what like it gets at why things happened in that trial the way they did and why, I mean, ostensibly this show doesn't take a stance on whether or not OJ is guilty, but you know that you're watching this basic miscarriage of justice, but that happened for these reasons that were really hard to deny. Yeah, I do like that um, the show started out, like, I was like, ooh, how are they going to show? And they're really, like, vague about it. And then slowly as episodes progressed, I just stopped caring if he was guilty. I'm like, everything else that ha- that's happening around this show and what it's choosing to focus on in the trial is just so much more interesting minute to minute. Yeah, uh, because what determined d- his... Uh, the- what, what determined his acquittal was not whether or not he did it, it's how the personalities in the trial made the story go the way that it did. Well, I think yeah, what else is it's interesting, been really too, well and you touched upon this, is that... You know, this was a loaded issue. What's happening out? No one wanted another Rodney King riot. Um, and Johnny Cochran took full advantage, right? There's a whole bit in the episode, I think it's like the third or fourth episode, where they're talking about playing the race card. And even within OJ's own camp, people are like, should we play the race card? Should we not? Um, and Johnny Cochran doesn't think that exists because he, at least in the beginning of the trial, believes that there's racist intent from the LAPD to kind of frame OJ. That's how he at least sells himself on defending him. Um, but then you, so you have this dichotomy where it's, yeah, they are taking advantage of racism or the race conversation uh, to get OJ off. But there is racism plaguing the LAPD and it keeps yeah. showing its face. It's like, it's it's just that's what's crazy and i think if i learn anything about the case through this show it's just how twisted it was behind the scenes but how true it was just naturally organically they they are aligning with something real even when they're f- talking out their ass and and strategizing like evil lawyers <laughs> it's and amazing how much that like 
how little seem, things seem to have changed. I mean, the LAPD may be different, but like in terms of the black community not trusting police, like not much has changed. Like there is still a lot of reason for black people to be skeptical of police, sadly. Like no, there's been so little improvement on that in 20 years. But so can we talk about the performances a little bit here? Because yeah. when we roll our eyes and say that, we're, you know, it's not really we got so much out of the actual coverage of the trial. We don't want to hear any more about OJ, OJ, OJ. But like getting actors to play these parts and taking us into their lives. That's essential. That's what this, the Tobin's book did so well that they're adapting here. Uh, and that's what seeing Marsha Clark, seeing Sarah Paulson play Marsha Clark and like, you know, the last, I think the episode coming up is very much about her and her hairdo and the, the scrutiny night of her. Episode, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. it's just so horrible. And you get to see, and and this does it for all the characters at different points, just the vice that they're in. And each day of this trial that goes by, it's taking, it's eroding them slowly. Uh, and David Schwimmer is amazing at, as Robert Kardashian because of that exact thing. He's so, I mean, he's OJ's best friend. He's, you know, the juice meme is really funny. Uh, that is pure Ryan Murphy. Like that is the perfect confluence of everything that, Alexander and Karaszewski give to this like the the integrity and the the voices of these characters it's great um biopic writing but then you have Ryan Murphy who just knows that if you keep saying juice it's going to be a meme it's going to capture our attention in a totally different way and it they align perfectly here but like that is so tragic too his slow descent into realizing that OJ did it it's so sad and yeah. <laughs> Schwimmer is so sad as that character. Who's your favorite? Who's your favorite performance? Dave, I just talked. So you, you, you who's okay. yours? Dave, who's your favorite performance? Uh, Courtney B. Vance, just because yeah. that's what I was going to say. He came, he came out, came out kicking, and then like just keeps adding little bits of complexity. Like even the stuff with his wife, it's just so good, moment to moment. Yeah, so yeah, he plays. Oh, John but least, least least favorite I want to say is John John Travolta. No, I want to stand up for John Travolta. John Travolta is okay, doing something okay. so weird and like specific <laughs> and like I don't know if that was what the real Robert Shapiro was, but I believe that that's what the real Robert Shapiro was. Like he's so slimy and so like pathetic in his desire for recognition and competing with Johnny Cochran and Effie Bailey on his own defense counsel. Like it's so it's. Oh, that character is so weird, and John Travolta is just really running with it. And I don't know; it's like a big performance for I, uh, someone who really prided himself on a big personality. That's true. This maybe it's because of John Travolta, but I feel like this is almost like a Tarantino movie, rejuvenating all these people and they're <laughs> like revitalizing careers. It's totally. I mean, I'm glad Travolta's in that, whacking it up. It's just insane what he's doing, and the eyebrows, the eyebrows. Ugh. It's that, incredible. But yeah, he's a totally different head. person. He's a real performance. He's not really doing that anymore. And I and I learned this is this is a little gossipy, I guess, but someone from within the Ryan Murphy camp told me that Ryan Murphy hates that performance. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was taken aback. I'm like, that's so funny because I think Travolta's actually pretty good in a truly campy way. He's the real campy beacon in this show, but uh, I like him. I like that. It needs that. He cuts the edge off, right? Because Courtney B. Vance is such a thunderstorm. In the and show. and like Marsha or uh, Sarah Paulson as Marsha Clark is like so lived in and authentic, and like she and um, Sterling K. Brown plays Chris Darden. Yep. Um Are like so like they're these people who are like living in these shitty apartments and like coping with like bad coffee compared to all of these high flying defense lawyers and they are like those performances just feel really real and like they could be in any like kitchen sink drama and comparing coping that to Travolta, with like they're... bad coffee yeah i mean we've all been yeah, there we I know mean, that struggle it's a struggle yeah <laughs> yeah it's a they're all living in different worlds and their performances really say that so the, the variety of the performances it just gives you something new to look forward to every time you watch it and and the balance of this show really works. You know, everyone gets a moment. Nathan Lane has had some amazing speeches as F. Lee Bailey, kind of just sitting in the back of the room, and then he chimes in, and you remember he's in this show, and he just destroys it. And I think later in the series, um, the guy who plays Judge Ito, this guy Kenneth Choi, you know, in the first six episodes, I, he hasn't really been doing too much, but then he gets an episode, you know, then he gets a big moment, and everyone... 
I just love the balance of this show that's been meticulously crafted like a really long movie as opposed to so many 10-episode series that just feel like they're stretching one two-hour idea across that time. Like, this needed every beat to kind of get into and then you get into the heads later in the series of all the um the jurors you know you don't time was such a factor for this oj trial and i think we all felt it when we lived it if you were cognizant of the oj trial when it was happening where where, where were you guys do you remember well, the oj trial wait hold on can we roll back just a few minutes i am only now putting the pieces together i am uh, as good of a uh, legal mind as uh, anyone who was on uh, the prosecution against O.J. Simpson. Um, this is a Ryan Murphy show. <laughs> he yes. is an executive producer. Yeah, that's why I don't watch it. Yeah, but he, see, but this wasn't. It didn't start with him. That's the thing. It started with Doesn't Scott matter. Alexander I, and I Larry Karazowski. I have a policy of not watching anything that Ryan Murphy is a part of, and I'm never going to change that. Wow. Well, I could. That's I could, not cool. I was going to say this, and this is going to sound uh, about as wrong as can be, but I can smell his taint a mile away. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, uh, yeah but, you're you're missing out. No, uh, after, David, where were you when just, the OJ verdict came out? I was in fourth or fifth grade, I suppose. Uh, I, I was, I was in grade. the verdict. I was in fourth grade, so you were probably in fifth or sixth. And I was in grade. sixth. Yeah, they, they wheeled the TV it. into the room so we could watch it. Yeah, I was just talking, I think, yeah, I was talking to someone about the moments in school when the TVs were allowed on. One yeah, of them was 9-11. Yeah, 9-11 yeah. and OJ. And that's really true. And But, like, I why OJ? I didn't realize anything it. besides 9-11 and OJ. Yeah, but my I was in fourth grade. It was, like, after spelling... And my teacher turned on the TV and we just sat there and watched the end of the trial. It was insane. Yeah. Well, it's in, in retrospect, it's because they thought that L.A. was going to explode into race riots again, right? But, like, why would they want us to see that? Like, they... None of us lived anywhere near L.A. I think the teachers needed to see Well, it. I mean, with... <laughs> I do, too. I think, that's, I think that's what it was. They were just like, uh, yeah, kids, you got to watch. <laughs> we learn about O.J. Uh, I guess we, I... Well, I... I guess we didn't persuade David, but anyone else who is on the fence about this show, please don't don't have a Ryan Murphy blanket fatwa. Watch no, the show. I'm I'm, le- I'm less persuaded than I was when you started because <laughs> I didn't know about wow. Ryan Murphy. Idiotic. Although we should maybe we should end on. I, I hope this is not a sour note, but we really haven't talked about Cuba Gooding Jr. as OJ. Mm. He he's he. Right. When, when he's- we're talking about. Our least favorite performances. He's he's probably mine because he doesn't really act like OJ. He doesn't sound like OJ. He doesn't carry himself like OJ. And uh, he's been written now, like six episodes in. He's just making sports jokes the whole time. He's just like, put me in, coach. And that's that's not really enough. Well, uh, Jeffrey Tubin's book makes it sound like OJ was incredibly stupid, which is not something I have a hard time believing. No. So there's maybe not a lot to play there. Yeah, I'm not black. I'm OJ. That is an that incredible is line. That is a thing that he said a lot, yep. <laughs> as you'll find out in the documentary too. So, yeah, the show is amazing. He said um, that on on multiple occasions. Yeah, he said that when he was doing interviews back when he joined the he NFL said that for in the first interviews? time. Yeah, because so when he uh, graduated from USC and joined the NFL. That was, you know, in the height of the civil rights movement. And a lot of people were wondering when when he was going to align himself. Oh, because a lot of um, black athletes were pulling out of events, specifically the Olympics at the time. And OJ not only played football at USC, but he ran track. So OJ was going to the Olympics uh, and he would not he would not bow out and he was not going to align himself with the civil rights movement. And and his explanation was, I'm not black, I'm OJ. And that's yeah. that's how he walked through life. And, and that is the man who was acquitted because of uh, racial solidarity, according to some people. That That is the most, I mean, David, you're talking about just watching the documentary. That's what the documentary does so well. It, like, puts it into a real historical context, what O.J. fought against um, to become part of white culture, I guess, is, is a crass way of putting it, but... You know, the, why he moved into the neighborhood in L.A. that he did and why he joined the country clubs that he did and why he quit the NFL and why, 
you know, he did all these things that led him to this moment. Uh, and the sh- and the people versus OJ does not go there. Uh, it starts with the the murder. Um, but, but it's a that, much broader story about the people involved in the trial. Exactly. It, it really expands a microcosm into the cosmos itself. And uh, but where race is still a very important. I mean, as people will find after the sixth episode, as it we uh, you know crescendo to the final finale or whatever, uh, race becomes even more important. And Johnny Cochran just goes insane. I mean, what he's mounting is is just radical and uh I am, the show does I'm it so in a very very it, there's a lot of fury in the show i'm actively dreading the if the glove doesn't fit you must acquit i just I'm, i feel so bad for chris darden already that i just am cringing in advance for that for that scene sure it is tough good. to watch it's tough to watch yeah it's good <laughs> the people versus OJ. versus oj don't listen to david <laughs> never yeah does it for today's fighting in the war room we'll be back on friday talking about 10 cloverfield lane spooky mysterious monsters clovers. maybe clovers mailboxes <laughs> uh in the meantime tell the people who you are i'm matt patches i'm the entertainment editor of thrillist.com and i'm on twitter at mr patches and remember we have a website fighting in the where you can share episodes you can leave comments that we'll probably read out loud or you can do anything. It's a website. It's the future. Fightingintheworm.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm a staff writer at Rolling Stone and a critic at Slate. And you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. You can find all of us together on Facebook. Fightingintheworm.com. Or Fighting nope. in the I'm Dave Gonzalez. On Facebook. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you get... You go to all those places. They'll yeah, all many, many sort of lead places. back. To Fighting in the room, War Room on Facebook.com. Great. <laughs> yeah. Someone should buy that now. Not not it. Um, uh, I'm Dave Gonzalez. Spell my first name, DA7E. That's also my Twitter handle. I write for Latino-Review.com and Geek.com. And I also do a podcast called Storm of Spoilers that is about uh, Game of Thrones spoilers. It used to be about things we knew from the books that we're going to be on the show, but this year we get to push off into complete spoiler territory because George R. R. Martin didn't finish the sixth book. So figure out what we have to say about that at fightingintheworm.com slash gotspoilers. You guys had me convinced he would finish the sixth book too, so I blame you for... We were almost almost right. It's not our fault he's slow. You were so close. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. I'm at VanityFair.com, and I'm on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H, and we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where we'll talk to you and each other and talk about this week's lightning round question. What was it? In honor of Sally Field and Hello, My Name is Doris, what's your favorite performance from an actress over 60? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. <laughs>